Welcome to the Methinks podcast, where we explore questions about faith, history, sexuality, and ethics from the perspective of two Christian graduate students. student studying philosophy, and I do research in justice, privilege, and design arguments for God's existence. And I'm Maggie. I am an elder graduate student in history. I study mostly evangelicals, but I have what one professor has deemed intellectual ADD, and I like to study a lot of different things. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about thinking wrongly about factory farms and why it even matters. And to be honest, Joel, I think until I started hanging out with you, I wasn't completely convinced it did matter that much. So you want to talk a little bit about why you think it matters? Absolutely. And I hope that any convincing I did was rooted in good arguments and not in uh, fallacious arguments. So today we're talking about factory farms. And in particular, this falls under the umbrella of animal ethics. And we're just exploring some questions like, what should Christians think about factory farms? What sorts of moral concerns should Christians have towards animals? So we are going to be talking a little bit about what are called fallacies. Um, And Maggie was pressing me to clarify what that means. Yeah, to specify, you wanted to call this podcast Fallacies and the Ethics of Factory Farms, and I thought that was pretentious. So you very graciously allowed me to change the name, but now you can get your fallacies in there. So yes, what are fallacies, Joel? Well, fallacies, and also that name was very cool. The alliteration, I thought, sounded great. But a fallacy is an errant way of reasoning, So we reason all the time, and sometimes reasoning goes right, sometimes reasoning goes bad. So just roughly a fallacy is an errant form of reasoning or of trying to reach a rational conclusion. So let's just get some backdrop here. Since the start of the animal rights movement in the 70s, there has been growing concern about the welfare and treatment of animals within the food industry and elsewhere, for example, in scientific experimentation and in hunting and entertainment. Absolutely. I think I come across that a lot. Um, My students have a tendency to really get into arguments against scientific experiments or, um, for example, animals being used for makeup experimentation is a really popular one. Uh, But those tend to be issues that aren't really related to our day-to-day lives. So you're asking something a little bit more personal of us today in that these decisions are actually involved with things that we do daily. Right. Like eating food. So let's focus on animal consumption. To meet the growing demand for meat, animal farming has expanded into a massive, massive industry. So today, millions of chickens, pigs, and cows are raised in what are called factory farms. And these farms bear little resemblance to the more simple and natural farming environments that come to mind when you think of a standard farm, right? So factory farms are usually massive warehouses or barns aimed at minimizing the need for costly land, as well as for controlling for unpredictable weather conditions and so on. But as they achieve those goals, they also aim to maximize the quantity of animals that can be grown and raised before they become our food. 
And here's where we start to venture into the area of ethical concerns, because factory farms are notorious for some of the questionable ways they treat animals, the questionable ways they raise animals. So let's just give some examples. Uh, First of all, animals live in very unnatural and very crowded living conditions with little space for free roaming. Pigs often have it the worst. So think about what are called gestation crates. Gestation crates are used for pregnant sows. The goal of the crates is to minimize space and to mitigate health problems for pregnant pigs. The problem is that to achieve these goals, gestation crates have to be quite small. They are so small that a sow literally cannot turn around or roam. That's the purpose, though. It's to prevent the cow, the sorry, the sow from moving around. And she will spend months in that crate. As she after she gives birth, she is then moved to a nursing crate with openings that allow her piglets to nurse. But the nursing crate is still too small for her to roam around or even turn around. What this implies is that these pigs will spend the better part of a year in a space that is so small that they cannot move, right? This goes on until these pregnant pigs give birth and after which they um, continue to produce more and more litters until they're no longer able to bear uh, piglets and then they're killed and turned into something like sausage or other pork products. Now, I think pigs have some of the worst treatment in the animal, uh, sorry, in the factory farm industry. And gestation crates are part of that problem. But these sorts of treatments uh, assail chickens and cows as well. I mean, with chickens, there are what are called battery cages, where a chicken will spend its entire life living in a cage that is the size of a piece of printing paper. And there's also debeaking, um, which scientific research shows that debeaking can be quite painful. There are various nerve cells in the chicken's beak. It's not just like clipping your fingernails. I could go on and on. There are all sorts of ways in which factory farm animals undergo immense suffering. Did you have any thoughts about that? I mean, I think that pretty much where we're coming from is we heard a lot of argumentation in the last few decades about the fact that people are going to be starving, right? And we need to focus on food production, food production to feed starving populations. And because of that, we have now created a food industry that is so focused on outproduction um, that we don't actually think through what good is going into that, right? Um, And so one of the concerns that immediately jumps to my mind is that if we change the way that food production is pursued, how is that going to affect like human ability to get food. Um, So very quickly, can you just say something about that? I think that's an excellent concern and a very reasonable one. I think that one thing I want to say about that is conversations about animal ethics are often what you might call privileged conversations. Because if you're going to live a morally concerned life about animals and still consume animal meat, that might push you away from consuming or buying factory farm meat. But not everyone has the luxury of, say, being able to afford different kinds of meats. And so I just want to concede right off the bat that these concerns don't require or don't necessitate that everyone everywhere minimize their consumption of factory farm meat. That's just not going to be viable for some people. That doesn't imply, however that for many of us, factory farms aren't a moral concern about which we should do something. For many of us, 
we can change our consumption habits. We can buy meat elsewhere. As far as how that's going to impact the economy at large, yeah, look, I'm not an economist, but I think that we should have a bit more faith in the cap- in a capitalist economy like the United States. It can bounce back in various ways from these sorts of adjustments. Moreover, if the adjustments are incremental, which is what would happen, that allows for the economy and the, um, and the consumer economy to respond in an incremental way as well. So when you have these massive upheavals in an economy, that's where you have problems. But if you just have people incrementally adjusting, then I think you're going to f- face less devastating effects. Um, But in any case, if we're buying more ethically raised meat, we're also creating jobs and wealth creation in other areas, say for local farmers. So that's something to keep in mind as well. Yeah. And one of those things that, because I've heard you say all this before, that I really like about the way that you answer that is it is actually about our individual choices, right? You're not necessarily lobbying for us to all go out and try and change um, legislation, although that certainly could be a part of this conversation. But instead, like you're asking those of us who do have the ability to choose where we're getting our meat, to think through how we're choosing even what our diet is, to think differently, to think in a more Christian way about our diet. And that's not something I think that necessarily is part of everyday conversation in Christian circles. Um, And when it is, it tends to be uh, approached with um, sort of a contentious edge, right? Like, hey, wait a second. Like, I can see this, right? Like, I can see what you're getting at, but I see nothing in the Bible, right, that supports this. And so I know you have some really specific things that you want to say about the arguments that you've heard fighting back or pushing back against this argument that we need to be thinking more Christianly about how we consume meat. Um, So what are some of those um, objections that you want to chat about today? Yeah, and I I love everything you just said. I think it's really insightful. And, And two, just to go back real quick, you're right. Like the question has to come back to this for us as Christians. What moral responsibilities do we have towards non-human creatures? Right. And I, I think you're totally right that there are really, there are different reactions to animal ethics amongst evangelical Christians or Christians at large. And I think a lot of evangelical Christians are really good about manifesting concern for a variety of justice issues. I'm, I'm not convinced that we have manifested enough concern for the welfare of animals. So that leads us to this question. What should Christians be doing about this? How can we manifest faithfulness to the kingdom of God and its values, its goals, while also consuming? Because we have to consume. So just as a, a bit of hedging, we will definitely address more of these questions in upcoming episodes. But I just want to take a moment now to address some common responses that Maggie was pointing out. These are responses that a lot of Christians I've talked to um, have raised in reaction to some of these concerns about the treatment of animals in factory farms. And um, let's just get right into them. So the first objection or concern goes something like this. They'll say, quote, I see your concern. However, Jesus ate meat, so it can't be immoral to eat meat unquote. And what are your reactions to that, Maggie? Well, I'm a historian, so automatically I'm annoyed by this one um, because I think that the context is completely different, right? Um, And I think a lot of 
a lot of folks are going to have that reaction as well. Now, wait a second. Just because things were happening in biblical times differently doesn't mean that we might have go- not have gone astray in our modern times. Um, and so in, in many ways, I think it's problematic because you're just making this you know, really broad claim um, that isn't actually addressing the concern about factory farms specifically um, and the treatment of animals. It's not necessarily, if you're, if you're trying to argue for like becoming a vegan, this might be a more um, useful objection. But I think for the specifics of animal welfare and treating animals well, even if you do consume meat, it's less effective. So that's kind of my reaction, but I know you have something a little more specific in mind. Well, Actually, I mean, I think you're getting things exactly right. Um, I mean, look, it's true that Jesus ate meat. So if Jesus is God incarnate, uh, morally perfect, then what he does couldn't be morally wrong. There's one argument, right? And so Jesus ate meat. So it follows that eating meat can't be morally wrong. And I just want to concede that's absolutely right. But the problem here is that it's not addressing the actual concern that was raised above, right? I mean, we're here, we're here, we're, we're talking about factory farms. We're talking about how we raise animals, how we treat animals, not about eating animals itself. It may be permissible to eat animals, but impermissible from a Christian point of view to treat animals any way we'd like on their journey towards becoming our food. So just because Jesus ate meat does not justify treating animals any old way. Okay, I think we've said enough about that. Let's consider the second objection. It goes something like this. In Acts 10, Peter has a vision of a blanket of animals being lowered, and he is told, get up, Peter, kill and eat. So it seems to follow from this text that God permits us to kill animals. In fact, scripture gives us permission to eat what we would like without guilt. Um, Colossians 2.16 says, therefore, let no one judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a feast, a new moon, or a Sabbath. So I often hear people raise this sort of concern that if we manifest a lot of concern about how the how animals are treated, then we're not we're, we're in a sense producing guilt for something that we shouldn't feel guilty over, namely animal consumption. Because look, Scripture tells us that we shouldn't let anyone judge us for what we eat or drink, and so on. So I mean. Part of the issue here is that it's it's a similar kind of objection to the previous one. It, per, it permits, perhaps, it justifies certain kinds of consumption. But why think that these scripture verses justify factory farms themselves, right? Yeah. I, and I think, too, like this argument um, that just because it's allowable or permissible to kill animals means that you can kill them in any fashion. Um, it's it, That's not what it's saying. Um, and there's also other verses that mitigate um, the argument as well, because we are supposed to be moderate. We are supposed to be wise in how we consume. We are supposed to um, not be gluttonous, for example. And so this verse, you know, therefore let no one judge you by what you eat or drink, um, that's not quite talking about that, right? Right. Um, So there are other passages as well that we should keep in mind, right? There's more to this story. There's a more holistic um, message that the Lord is trying to convey to us about the way that we approach life and living and these kind of necessary components of living like eating, right? Um, And it certainly is a point of a lot of contention. Um, I think this verse always makes me think about dieting. I don't like just because... uh, 
there's so much judgment around that um, as sure. well. And there's a really interesting history about Christianity and dieting, but that's for a different podcast. Um, but there's, I think, something to this as well. And it strikes at really the burden people feel towards how do I live rightly? There's so many who feel like every decision I make about life and living is already, am I serving the Lord? Am I not serving the Lord? And they're really cautious about adding this to that list um, because it is actually a daily burden to think about where you're getting your meat. And if you're you know, a mother of five children, um, that adds a lot of guilt to your table if um, you, know, you have to stop at McDonald's, for example. Um, and so I think there is an argument that can be made about not adding too much guilt to the life of a Christian. Um, so talk a little bit more about that. I think that's really, really good. I mean, look, Christianity has a lot to say about guilt and guilt just doesn't have a natural home within a Christian life, within the Christian worldview. I mean, part of the beauty of the gospel is that it speaks to our guiltiness, our shame, our wrongdoing and says, be freed from that, right? We are not to be motivated by guilt. There's, there's, there are times, of course, where conviction is very appropriate. That's part of the Christian journey and Christian sanctification. But to walk in guilt is a different matter. And I would just say to anyone who feels that moral burden or that moral, what you might call moral overload, that it's okay to go before the Lord humbly and just say, look, I'm not sure I'm supposed to do something about this, but when I think about it, it's it's just it feels weighty. I feel guilty. But given my circumstances, given my financial situation, I may not be able to change my consumption habits. Go to the Lord before that and just like receive his fatherly grace and mercy. We are people in progress and the, and, and the kingdom of God gives us grace in these areas. Um, I would also say this, that in ethics... We are careful to distinguish between obligations that have a, an initial presumptive degree of force and then obligations that amount to what are called all things considered obligations. So suppose I promise you that I'll meet you for coffee and we're going to talk about an upcoming podcast. That promise creates a presumptive obligation to go and meet you for coffee. But here's something else that's true about my situation. On my way to the coffee uh, meetup, I am walking past a pond and I see a child drowning. That's a morally significant fact about my situation that now creates a all things considered obligation to save the child, which means I'm going to not show up for the meetup, right? And so when you look at all the things going on in a person's life, all the things going on in a person's situation, ask yourself, what is all things considered morally required of me? And for any individual, that's going to be different, and especially when it comes to animal ethics. Some people are in financial hard spots where changing their consumption habits is not feasible, at least not feasible without, say, hurting their nourishment, hurting their health, perhaps um, harming their relationships. And those are morally salient properties to take into consideration. So there's a presumptive degree of obligation. There's an initial force to the obligation to refrain from complicity in the mistreatment of animals. But there can be overriding factors in one's life that don't let that obligation amount to the status of an all things considered obligation. I know that that might seem kind of theoretical and, and, and abstract, but it's a very important thing. Some people will have a 
like an all things considered obligation to refrain from eating factory farm meat. Some will have a more modest obligation to just minimize their consumption of factory farm meat. And some, given their circumstances, will have no obligation at all. That's the nature of morality. So I just, I, I hope that that conceptual terrain helps us kind of free ourselves of some guilt as well. Does that seem helpful? It does. I mean, I, I do think I want to clarify, you're not saying that all morality functions that way. That's right. There are moral, moral absolutes, mm-hmm. yeah. for sure. I think yeah. so. Yeah. yeah. So, I, yeah, I think that's really an important concept is that, like, our goal here is to think about how we can do better, um, not necessarily to sit and think, okay, this is, like, how we're doing everything completely wrong. We need to change immediately. But instead, like, really to sit in this and humbly think about, hey, is there a way that I can do better? Can I can I be serving the Lord a little bit better in that's my right. habits, right? Am I equipped with the ability to do that as well, right? And that's an that's important, exactly right. yeah, really important concept. So to summarize what we're saying about this objection, there are two things. First of all, we think that these passages don't say anything about factory farms necessarily. And then second, These passages need to be taken in context, right? When the blanket of animals is lowered to Peter, this is a statement about the inclusion of the Gentiles into the kingdom of God. And in Colossians 2, where Paul says, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or what you drink or how you um, celebrate certain things. He's responding to a cultural situation where Christians were being told that in order to merit salvation, in order to sustain salvation, they had to do all of these rituals, they had to abstain from eating certain things, or they had to eat certain things. And he's saying that's not the gospel. So these passages in context aren't saying anything about factory farms themselves. All right, so let's move on to objection three. And I think this one, particularly for me, hits home the hardest, um, because it is a very well-meaning objection. And I think in some ways, it is coming from the correct heart Um, the kind of heart behind this objection is correct. And so it goes like this, right? Um, I think it's good to be concerned about animal welfare, but human lives matter the most. There are so many harms and injustices facing human beings. That's where our focus ought to be. So how would you respond to me saying that to you? Well, I think that there are a number of things to say about this. First, I think it treats moral concern for animals like it's a zero-sum game. That is, if I invest myself into better stewardship of the animal kingdom, then I'll have nothing to invest into the well-being of human beings. And I think it's clear that that's not necessarily true. I mean, often in our moral lives, we juggle different moral responsibilities and different obligations. So I think that what you shouldn't hear me saying is that you need to supplant your concern for human beings with concern for animals, right? I think that would clearly be mistaken, but there's a way to wisely and incrementally add greater levels of concern and investment into the welfare of animals, even just by making slight adjustments in how you consume. Mm -hmm. And I would say too, like, remember this, expanding your circle of moral concern is an incremental journey. I can't emphasize that enough. So look, start with human beings. I think that's the right place to start. But then as you mature and grow in your discipleship to Christ, reach for easy ways of manifesting concern for animals as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And then second, if you're a Christian, you still have a mandate to be a steward over God's creation. 
So you can't get out of doing something on behalf of non-human creatures simply by appealing to the high moral status of human beings. You are an image-bearing steward and a member of the kingdom of God. Those identities come with the responsibility to steward all of God's creation. Any thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I think what you're saying about incremental change um, is important. Most um, of at least the people I know who are confronted with this issue are really used to hearing this argument from really passionate activists who have changed their entire lifestyles um, and are often very in your face about it, right? Um, so I think of a friend who years ago um, ha- held a potluck and she like refused to let someone bring their food inside because it had meat. Oh, wow. um, and it was very inhospitable and it was really awkward and I will never forget that moment. And I think that that's one of those cases where like, of course, genuine care for your fellow human beings is going to come first. Um, as a Christian, like that is where where like our heart lies. But as you said, like as we are becoming more Christ-like, as we are really imitating Christ, that's going to transform our attitude. And that servant's attitude is going to start applying to things outside of just, you know, human beings and and their priority. Um, And I think that when you really immerse yourself in the scripture you see how much like creation is a reflection of the lord and you want to honor that Um, and so this is really i think a natural outpouring of christian growth and so what you're not saying is that you have to become this radical activist who's in everyone's faces and insulting everyone you know when you go to thanksgiving dinner um and asking you know in a really um this is insulting to a lot of people and I'm not pointing you out, Joel, because I don't think you've ever done this. Um, But like, you know, where was this meat from kind of thing? That's not the point. Um, The point is to really just think about your decision making. And it doesn't really go a lot further than that. Um, This is about where you're at um, and start thinking about that and how you can change starting there. What is the Lord asking of you? Um, And I think that's an important question for any Christian to be asking, not just about factory farms and meat consumption, but in lots of different ethical areas. Um, right. What is the Lord asking of you in your life? Yeah. And and two, not to think that if God asks me to do something, it means I have to become an exemplar of that thing, right? Like if God asks you to con- care more about racial injustice, and he does, it doesn't mean that now you have to become a social justice like warrior advocate and be a part of a social justice initiative, right? Like no one thinks that you have to do that exactly. There are some things you need to adjust, some things you need to start doing. They might be quite small. They may be a little bit bigger, but no one thinks that you have to go to one extreme of orienting your entire life in a like really, you know, serious way around that. I mean, it is serious, but it's not to to the level of say taking on a new career. And I think a similar point applies here. If God calls us and he does to be, loving compassionate stewards of the animal world that doesn't mean you have to be you have to join PETA right or that you need to become a vegan there is a spectrum of moral growth and I think what we're required to do is take a step in the right direction on that moral spectrum so I think everything you're saying is absolutely right and I'll just add one last thought about this objection and you know perhaps I should have even started with this I just want to concede something crucial that's implied in this objection. And it's that human beings are far more morally valuable and important than animals. 
right? So I want to concede that our, our first and, and primary responsibility within our moral concern, our, our, our circle of moral concern is towards human beings. But look, we don't need to equate concern for animals as leveling the moral landscape, as implying that humans and animals are identical in terms of their moral significance. Having said that, we, I should be clear, there are many in the animal welfare movement who think that that is the case. They think that, morally speaking, animals and humans are on the same moral uh, level. So just to add a bit of terminology, there's a debate between what are called hierarchicalists and Unitarians. So hierarchicalism says that there are hierarchies of moral significance. And most people who are in that camp say that um, persons, like human persons, are at the center of moral, the moral, uh, that moral circle. On the other hand, Unitarians say, no, there is no concentric circles of moral significance. There is a level playing field. So long as you're a sentient creature, that is, you can experience pain, you can experience pleasure, you, if you have preferences, if you have any sort of mental life, you are on the same playing field as any other creature who has sentience as well. So Peter Singer, a philosopher, is a big proponent of Unitarianism. And I just want to interject here. Um, Peter Singer is a very controversial figure. He said a lot of things that um, I personally find extremely offensive and just flat out wrong um, about morality, um, particularly about um, children and babies. Um, but that we're not advocating for his philosophy, we're presenting one of his arguments because it is relevant to this issue. So just as the non-philosopher who's not used to um, being objective about philosophy, uh, I just wanted to make that point. So Joel, back to you. Totally understand where you're coming from, and I think that's an important qualification. So Peter Singer just thinks that animals and human beings are on a similar moral playing field, and that the suffering of one isn't more morally important than the suffering of the other. He has this principle called the, the principle of equal consideration, and he, he thinks we need to treat like suffering morally similar. What does that mean? I mean, something like this. He has this illustration where if you had to decide which is more morally problematic, slapping a horse or slapping a child, he says, well, you don't ask, well, which one of these creatures has higher moral standing? That's the wrong question for him because they have identical moral standing. Rather, for him, you ask, which of these creatures would suffer the most if they were slapped? And he says, you know, in most cases, that's not going to injure the horse as much as it's going to injure the child. So because the suffering is greater, that's why we should be more morally concerned about the child being hit than the horse being hit. But hierarchicalism is going to deny that. It's going to say, no, we can actually just point to the fact that the child is a human being as the reason why we should be more concerned with the, with the um, pain of the child. Yeah, absolutely. I'm definitely not a Unitarian. No, right. <laughs> and, and I don't think that, I don't think that Unitarianism fits nicely into a Christian worldview, though I don't want to stake like a serious claim there. I, I'm sure there's some literature debating this, but I just want to be clear. I grant what this objection is saying that, uh, that human life takes moral priority. And that's perhaps where, not perhaps, it is where our first, our foremost moral concern should be. And you might, you might have concern with some of these concerns about factory farms because you think that this is saying something like animals and humans are on the same moral playing field. And you don't have to think that in order to be concerned about what's happening in factory farms. 
We can put humanity at the very center and be primarily concerned with the welfare of humans without also rejecting entirely the concern for the welfare of animals. So here's a quote from a um, philosopher whose work I admire on animal ethics, Shelley Kagan. He says, it seems to me to be true, both that animals count for less, morally speaking, than people. And yet for all that, that they still count sufficiently, that there is simply no justification whatsoever for anything close to current practices. And I think that's an important point to make. We can concede the moral exceptionalism and moral importance of human beings while still thinking that a lot of the ways we treat animals in the factory farm industry are not justified. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the important thing there is, I think we know that in our gut, right? Like if we even dig a little bit into what factory farms is doing to animals, it gives us a, a sick feeling, right? We're unsettled because we are watching um, creatures that are part of God's creation being treated with no care whatsoever. Um, and that does sit poorly and we know it. Um, and so we can very easily ignore the problem, not think about it. That's been me for most of my life. Um, and I certainly am not um at all a radical activist or even remotely close. But I do think that doing exactly what you have been advocating for, like just rethinking some of my choices, how can I, with the the material I have in front of me, right, with my finances, with my choices, with my options, make wiser choices um, and not necessarily pressure other people into it, but simply have the conversation. Ask um, what what would, you know, Um, the Lord want us to be doing in this situation um, in a way that doesn't create undue hardship or pressure on you or your family. All right, so let's close out with this last objection, um, which is very simple, that animals don't have rights. So there you have it. End of story. What would you say to someone who offers that argument? I think it's a super interesting argument. And there is substantial debate in the philosophical literature on whether or not animals are the sorts of things that could have rights. And there are some who say they they do, some who say they don't. But here's the most important thing. It's very simple. Whether or not animals have rights, they still have moral standing. They're still the sorts of creatures that we should care about morally speaking. So you don't have to think that the only grounds for being morally concerned about something is if it has rights. It's enough that it's a creature that is created by an infinitely good, wise, and loving God. It's enough that it's the sort of thing that can suffer and experience pain. It's enough that we have a responsibility to be stewards over God's creations. Notice that none of what I just said introduced the language of rights. There are reasons to be concerned about the treatment of animals that have nothing to do with whether or not animals have rights. And just as a, you know, a, a preview of my own views, I'm going to reveal my cards here, I'm not sure that animals have rights. I'm on the fence about it. I tend to think that they probably don't. They're probably not the sorts of entities that have rights. I think that probably you need to be the kind of entity that has the potential for agency uh, to be a bearer of rights. But even that, like I'm not super wedded to that view. And it just doesn't matter. What matters is that these animals are capable of experiencing pain. Factory farms produce immense amount of pain on these animals. And what matters is that we are meant to be image-bearing stewards and compassionately tend to God's creation. That's enough to justify concern for animals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And yeah, I, I don't study this issue, um, but I don't at all have the inclination uh, that animals have rights. But at the same time, we have been asked to take care of the earth. I mean, it's the same sort of thing. You think of a friend who leaves you their plant. Of course, the plant doesn't have rights, but you're supposed to take care of it. Um, and that's that, right? And I think that that's a very simplistic sort of thing where the Lord has equipped us and asked us to take care of this earth. Um, and we should take that responsibility seriously. Uh, and yes, we are to use it for our good, right? So, you know, if that plant happens to be a mint plant, sure, you can use the mint for your, you know, non-alcoholic mojito. But there's, there's a way to take care of it well. And that's, I think, exactly what you're getting at. I don't think we have to get into the weeds of whether or not animals have rights. Um, and in many ways, that's just diverting um, the argument to something it doesn't need to be when someone brings up the question of animals having rights. Again, it's that legacy of that radical activism that I think Christians have a tendency to immediately jump to. Like, mm -hmm. you're, you're part of that camp. Um, and I think people in that camp are very well-meaning individuals. I don't want to uh, demean them. I don't think they're... Um, you know, completely out there. Some of them are completely out there and, and nuts, but that you don't have to be to be part of it. Um, but at the same time, that's not at all what we're arguing. We're saying that there is evidence, um, good evidence in the scripture, in just what we know about logically that a good loving God has asked us to take care of his creation. And therefore, how can we do that well? And it's pretty clear factory farms don't fit into that well at all. Thanks for joining us on the Methinks podcast. Just a bit more about what we're doing here. Our journey as Christians, graduate students, and budding scholars regularly leads us to explore questions about ethics, sexuality, history, and faith. The Methinks podcast is an invitation for you to join us in that journey, to thoughtfully engage and wrestle with these questions alongside us. We could be really dorky and say something like, and that's what we think. Um, <laughs> only on the times when we actually agree. Otherwise, that doesn't right. have the same ring of truth to it.